Well, hello, and welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. This is your host, Laura Camacho, and I am so glad you're here. We have a very cool guest today. This is something so totally different. We've had people from finance. This is more of a fintech person, and he's also local to Mount Pleasant. He's the president of a company called Form Free, and his company is all about direct source data to help more accurately assess credit risk. And as you all know, if you've ever gotten a loan for a home that your credit score, it seems to be kind of a game that is not in your favor. Like I consider myself an upright citizen. I pay my bills on time, all the time, except occasionally when I've traveled, I've skipped one. And so, you know, I have a decent credit rating, but to me, it doesn't reflect who I really am. So anyway, that's his background. He comes from finance and technology, but we're going to talk about innovation and communication and how when you're in an innovative space, especially when you're disrupting a traditional industry, some of the communication landmines that may be waiting for you. And so any of you listening who are in the startup space, or maybe you're with a heritage brand, but you're seeking to innovate a certain process or a way of looking at some aspect of the business, I think this will be particularly helpful. Eric, we spoke before, he's a delightful, charming Southerner. So you are going to really enjoy this conversation today. So Eric, welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. I'm super pleased to have a local person, a local industry disruptor, startup president on the show. We're excited to hear what you have to say. Why don't you start off by telling a little bit about your path to becoming the president of Form Free? Because I think you were in a more traditional finance role before. Am I right? Correct. Yeah. It's been a great, great, great journey um, beginning in finance. So just to take you back a little bit and how we culminate to today, really started out in evaluating risk, underwriting, processing, looking at compliance and risk for loans. And this was back in the 90s. And you know, back in the day, doing something like that, it was very paper intensive. It was a lot of touches, meaning there's a lot of people that are touching a loan file, for example, where you've got to ask consumers for information. You have to then work with your internal team and ask them, did you receive the bank statements? Did you receive the checks to prove that they make their rents on time? Did you get their disclosure signed? Did you get the purchase agreement from the real estate agent? It's a long process that takes a lot of touches of files and can be very cumbersome for the borrower or the consumer that's on the other end of it looking to attain that loan. So while on that side, it's very fortunate to work with the front end of the lending business, working with customers directly, and then working on what's called the back end of it, what was called the correspondent loan business, where I worked for financial institutions that were investors buying closed loans from the retail financial institutions that were, you know, they say taking Main Street to Wall Street. So the Main Street is Laura Camacho walks into Charleston Mortgage, you want to get a loan, you're dealing with that person right there in person, and that's the retail section of it. And then after working on the correspondent side, then uh, worked on the capital market side of things as well, where it's the behind the scenes, where pools of loans, a lot of people don't know this, but bonds are created by basically creating a security or the, the process is known as securitization. And that security is created and sold to investor groups and pension funds and 
sovereign wealth funds and all sorts of groups around the world. So after that, 15 years doing that, which was very, very great learning and really enjoyed that a lot, got more into the technology side, the analytics side, the innovation side. So I've been doing that for over 13 years, working anywhere with the largest servicing technology in the country. Also worked with one of the largest title insurance underwriters, which was also dealing with innovation as it deals with consumer approach to making things easier. But at the end of the day, when you start really thinking about what does this mean? Well, all these companies, whether it's the business I'm in, the business you're in, your other listeners, your other people that come on the show, at the center of all this is the human, the customer, me, you. Right, right, right. So became intrigued with what was going on at FormFree and got some introduction to the CEO, Brent Chandler, the CEO and founder here. And this was an idea that he'd brought to life back from 2007 to say, you know what? I had a tough experience going through moving from the Northeast to the Southeast. And I had to do this and I had to do that. And I had to gather this information, but they didn't know anything about me. And that's a story he told. And it stuck with me because I've been through that. You've probably been through that. Absolutely. Many times. Yes. Yeah. In that time, it was, why are we dealing with paper? You know, let's go straight to the digital. There's technology out there. There's analytics. And of course, back when Form Free started, it's not what it is today because data is standardized much better today. It's direct source. And I'll get into that in a second, how we deal with that as an innovator's approach to this. But I really became interested in how does a consumer figure out what their ability to pay is for any type of loan? Because at some point in our life, we have to borrow some sort of amount of money for something. And that can be for a mortgage, it can be for an auto loan, a home equity loan for improvement or paying off debts. It can be for the buy now, pay later is the big thing now amongst the Gen Zs, you know, where a lot of Gen Zs, which is people born between 1995 and 2012, their most important thing is they want better money management. And what's important to them is they want to connect outside financial accounts so they can see all financial data in one place. And they want to integrate wallets like Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay. Well, as you move down the line to millennials, Gen X, and boomers, you're seeing growth in all the sections and all the demographics. But obviously, as we move on in years, we become more set in how we want to operate with our not only our life, but our financial life. And what we're doing here is innovating the control of the consumer's permission data. So if you look at where we are, there was various growth and communication and, and even leadership styles with companies for the last few decades. And when the internet came in in the late 90s, we saw a huge, huge boom. And a lot of those companies that were the big companies, we don't hear about anymore, right? MindSpring, EarthSpring, AOL, you name it. But what was great from all that is other companies came in to learn from what worked and what didn't work and made it better. And ultimately, we're now in an area that data is getting more and more controlled by us as the consumer, where we can decide, do I want to share this information? Do I not want to share it? Because the last section that we saw with this innovation with internet boom, and we're all still in it, is the social media growth and smartphones and all that. And whether you're on a music platform like a Spotify or Google Play or iTunes, or you're in some sort of a social media platform like an Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it is, for years, we would get targeted ads that was based on our search and data was being 
used without us knowing. Well, now we're seeing a big movement into our data being controlled by us and sharing it with others as well as other entities. You know, it's called the Web3 movement, but Web3 is basically artificial intelligence, 3D imaging, the digital currencies that we hear about, the use of distributed and blockchain technology, and then the use of financial data as well, not only locally, but globally. Yeah, so this is going to change international transactions as well. Like I have a subcontractor in Kenya, and I know that there exists ways for me to pay him, but will that become different? Yeah, I mean, you're already starting to see that a little bit. You know, there's terms that are being used out there, such as the unserved or the underbanked. And, you know, we have 45 million people in this country alone that are considered invisible. And what I mean by that is, if you don't have a credit score or a FICO score, how do you go get a loan? Are these people that work for cash? Like in construction, I know is a lot of cash. Is that part of the situation where they get paid in cash? And so that's why they're invisible? That is part of it. But there's also people that are paid through an ACH deposit through their W-2 work or their self-employed sole proprietors or they're a corporation, small business, medium-sized business. But in our economy now, you know, when gig economies started growing in the last decade, there's a lot of people that will have various ways they get paid. And a lot of it have to go through their bank statement. So you can have people that, let's say locally here, they work with Boeing, but they also drive Uber. And then they also do consulting because they're a great developer, an IT developer of code and creating software development kits and programs and other sorts of things that they can do. They have special talents. Or you see it with a lot of musicians and artists. Yes, my husband's a violinist. We're both self-employed. I know exactly what you're talking about. Multiple streams of income. I mean, we feel our perception is that we have to bend over backwards and do triple flips when it comes to assessing risk. We did a refinance in our home a couple of years ago. So form free is going to make this better. I want to know, is there resistance in the wider finance industry or is everybody on board with this? So. Two-part answer to that, is everyone on board or is there resistance? There's always resistance to change, but the way we look at it, and this stems down from the top, is we all know this change is the constant. And the only way to make things better is to deal with change and deal with modifications. But if you have a plan in place, you have the right leadership, you know how to communicate with your team and your partners and your outsourced companies you work with or any sort of customer business lines that you work with, at the end of the day, it comes down to effective communication, the right leadership skills, and being able to assess risk. And we have all that in place. You know, you have regulators in every business. So in the lending business, you deal with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you deal with Federal Housing Finance Authority. And those are just a few, but there's some great leadership in place with those organizations that just recently in the last few years, you're really seeing a big, big push towards, you know what, there's a lot of people left without the ability to generate wealth. There's a lot of people that are left out for the ability to acquire an asset that helps them do their job better. So when I say that, I mean, there's 62 million Hispanics in the United States that a lot of them are doing those cash businesses, like you said, but there's a lot of them that utilize banks have great cash flow, manage their money well, but you know what? They don't have a score. And I think 
FICO does a good job for decades showing the ability to pay for certain segments of the United States. And what we're doing is we're the asset piece, working with the consumer's banking statements. In addition, the lenders can also still look at FICO scores and determine what is the risk. So instead of just working off of just one monolithic approach to assessing risk, Mm -hmm. we're saying you have the credit piece. How do you pay historically? We'll somehow determine what you do in the future. That is true in some instances. But what about those people that have cash flow? And as we say here, we do what's called, we create the self-sovereign financial identity. And it's what's called the I am token, I am. And it's consumer-centered where I as a consumer control my data and I control the sharing of that data to whomever I want. And it's a deterministic approach with our intelligence on top of it that just tells any lender that says, unbiasedly, by reviewing the data through your account statements, we can pick up employment, we can pick up various sources of income, we can pick up if the consumer is a renter and looking to buy a home, because a lot of people will pay through check and checks and or PayPal or check PayPal and Venmo. There's a lot of ways different things are done now with the payment systems that we've seen. Absolutely, yes. I mean, my husband gets paid all kinds of ways and he is Hispanic and he he watches his FICO score like it's, I mean, he pays a lot of attention to that, I think, because there's this perception that if you don't abide by the FICO rules, then you're going to have to pay more for your loans. And that's the bottom line. So is it true? I just want to make sure I'm perceiving this correctly. You're like a threat to FICO dominance in the market. What I would say is we're opening the aperture that has been left untouched. So we create more opportunities. So is it a threat? It's a different way of looking at it that historically to have more debt works in some instances. But our feeling is we like to work with FICO and have FICO meet form free And together you have, it's like putting another set of glasses on. You see things differently when you have another look into someone's view. Okay. It's expanding the market then. It's really not. It's expansion. Yeah. It's expansion, right. It's like we say a lot here, you know, our mission is we leverage source data and data-driven intelligence. And what we're doing is, is ushering in a new era of transparent, fair, and liquid credit markets. That's really what we're doing. And by way of self-sovereign financial identity, I am identified financially. We're all unique, right? That's why we call it consumer financial DNA here. My DNA is different than Laura Camacho's, and mm-hmm. it's different than Michael Johnson's, different than you know whoever we're talking with at any time. But it all comes down to, is the data correct? And it is with us because it's direct source. We're not working with pulling images off of documents or character recognition type of technology that has mistakes. This is direct from banking accounts. So that's what we call direct source data. So when you have clean direct source data, the intelligence that's put on top of it allows the analytics to be much more accurate and then have a non-biased lending decision made for any consumer at any time, real time, based on their account statements. Ah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. And so to answer your question, is there pushback on it? There's always pushback to change, but I can tell you this, lenders and regulators want to make this happen. And we've got various partnerships that we've formed where we've got groups that help people with down payment assistance. We have companies that help with searching for homes. We have other companies that help with credit cards to pay everyday bills like your Spotify, Netflix account. 
that can help build credit to show that you have the ability to pay some amount. And again, there's just creative ways by use of technology that change is not something to be scared about all the time. It actually makes things a lot easier for people because me being in the lending business, whenever I went through the refinance a couple of years back, that mortgage market in 21 was $4.2 trillion. We're at a $2.1 trillion market right now, and people are saying there's no business. We're just back to normal numbers. That's still a lot of business. Yeah, <laughs> I would, that sounds like a big number to me. So I'm watching the clock, Eric, and I want to get to some communication aspect of this because I'm talking to people, I'm like the confessor, you know, because I hear people's stories every day. And if there's not a problem, then they don't talk to me. And all I'm hearing these days is reorg, reorg, change, reorg. And you say not to be afraid of change. I don't think the people listening to this are not afraid of change per se, but some of them have been reorged out of a company. Some of them feel guilty because they weren't. What do you say to the people that are managing change, like living through it is changing their company dynamics and they may be young enough, like this is their first big economic hiccup. Where do they find the confidence? You've been in this a while and you know how important the communication is amid change, amid innovation, amid market change. How do you do it well? Uh, A couple of ways. It starts from the top, number one. It starts with the leadership team that not only have credentials of experience, but the important parts to make a leader very, very effective that if, you know, from any book that you've read or You've written books as well, and you've had a lot of people on your show that have provided a lot, a lot of benefit. There's some common themes in there. But I think more and more now, because change is happening faster than ever, the velocity is much, much faster than we've seen in the past because of technology and analytics and the growth there. It really comes down to you got to be very succinct as a company. What's your messaging? What's your vision? What are the core values? You know, there was a book I read that I, I love it. I learned a lot from it. A lot of things that I've been taught over the decades, but I also use myself, but it's a book by Bill Campbell called The Trillion Dollar Coach. And he was revered at some of the top Silicon Valley companies back in the day, Apple, Microsoft, and a few others. And you also have to be able to know your audience of who you're working with, because however your company's feeling inside, if they feel empowerment, if they feel like there's an open communication internally, that shows externally as well. So I think the leadership style is more collaborative these days. And that's where you see a lot of success, meaning be communicative, be reachable by your teams, make sure that you listen to ideas that come from your team, but not just listen to ideas, but ideas that come with solutions to overcome challenges, as opposed to people just saying, well, we need to do this. All right, well, why should we do it that way? And that just creates a culture of, all right, well, I know if I'm going to come up with an idea that maybe is not being presented, I better have some facts or a way to do it that's a better way. And I've had leaders like that in the past too, and I've always responded well. And I think a lot of people respond well just based on my years of working with various types of people. Yeah, I think it's important that everybody understand a key point of what you just said, that the velocity of change is not going to slow down. If anything, the automation processes and all the AI stuff is just speeding up, right? Speeding up decision-making. 
In fact, I have someone coming on the show soon who he has a book he's just written called Decision Sprints. Is it possible that we are moving too fast sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. That depends on the culture. I mean, we're a fast-moving culture here. I've been in cultures in the past that were exact opposite, too slow. And personally, I love moderation in a lot of things in my life. And I think that it's good to have that push to move and get things done fast for many reasons, right? From a business standpoint, you want to be leading the market. But you know what they say sometimes, the first one through the glass door gets bloody. And I've been in that scenario before, but it's okay. You can repair from there and the blood wipes away and you build over that. I also think that from a leadership standpoint, being succinct and being decisive is a better leadership style than some of the styles that I've been through in the past and some others that I've, I've been on some panels in the past with these types of questions that the most important things were being succinct, have follow-up, also have regular debriefs with your team, make sure that you're revisiting expectations around roles and responsibilities that you're providing feedback, you're providing resources to make informed decisions and then empower the groups within your company to make those decisions and then provide constructive criticism. And I've learned that I've gotten plenty of criticism over the years of ways I've done things, but it's all in delivery. If it comes with the sandwich clothes, right? You got your bread, which is the telling you what you need to work on. And you got the middle of the sandwich where you're good and you don't need to work on. It's your skill set. And then the, the bottom part is, you know, here's how I want to end the conversation of what I would really focus on. It works well. And people know that you're doing that when you're doing it. It's respectful as a one person to another of, I think you see leadership now, it's less authoritarian. And the companies that drive success, sustain and have great employee retention carry these types of skills with them. I think you're absolutely on target, but it's tricky, right? Because it feels a little bit chaotic at times because collaboration takes time. You know, it's a lot faster just to tell people what to do than to ask and discuss and to do the cross-functional discussions that you're inferring there. But in the end, it pays off. And I think, like you said, the values connecting what you're doing to your values. Just one last topic that I hear a lot about, and it's always funny to me, but what about the failing fast forward, fail forward, and then you fail at something and it's like, you screwed up, you moron. Why are you working here? What about the tolerance for failure? Because when employees are afraid to take risk, as you know, then they become very rigid and not innovative. Can you tell us some experience, real experience with something that didn't work out and how it was handled? Yeah, there was a time back in the beginning of my career, I worked for a bank and we had a great leader at the time that was innovative, but innovative at a speed that wasn't it was market leading, but not the first. You know what I mean? It was like in the top third. Right. And he would always say, if it ain't broke, break it. Meaning we hear the opposite, right? Right. All the time. But the point here was he's saying is if it's not broke, break it, because there's perpetual change and there's perpetual chances to get better. One of the companies I worked at, I was coming up with some new programs I thought made sense. And I thought, here's how we can help our customers. Here's some technology tools that would help them make better decisions and make it faster. And, you know, I, I came from the background of the mortgage lending space with some risk background, but more business development and strategy and some of those things. And we rolled out too quickly on some things 
And from a sales standpoint, got a lot of great positive feedback. Business started coming in and we didn't have the back end taken care of well enough. So it was the learning of pulling the trigger too soon on something that we knew would work, but we didn't have the back end office ready to handle that business. And what it did was we lost some trust in the customers. So that was a mistake made. But what learning there is not only do you have to have the plan and an effective strategy, but you have to have at the foremost of anything you do, the trust of your team inside, but the trust of your customers. Because really anything in life, whether it's business or personal, if the trust is gone, the foundation's gone, you're really not going to have any sort of connection. Right. That trust is such an essential element. And so you're talking to a lot of innovative professionals. They're not the president yet. They are headed that way. They are senior directors, maybe 35 years old, hungry. Since you have had so much success with the leadership in the innovative space, what suggestions or what is your take for them, for us to sell the value of what we're doing and maybe a new idea to build trust upstream, like with the presidents, the C-suite, the people two or three levels up that are always super, super, super busy and overwhelmed. Just give us some perspective on that. I think would be really helpful for our audience. Yeah. I'd go back to be succinct in your message and make sure it comes with validated data, not hearsay. I think that's where you see a lot of failures with some aspiring leaders is it's maybe taking the words or opinions of what they hear and not validating it before it becomes something that they want to present to leadership for changes. So that's most important. The second thing I would say is as a current executive leader looking for that next step is it's important to communicate often and whether that communication is written form, audio form, calls, know who you're dealing with because you got to know everyone works differently. They don't all work like me. They don't all work like you. Now, I had someone in the past that was in one of my groups and very much did not want to talk on the phone much unless we had to, but was very good at sending text and emails and outlying things. And it was up to me to read it. So I would do it. We would only have calls when we need to, but it made that person feel more empowered and independent. So it builds trust amongst peers and provides room for everyone's efforts to be acknowledged and supported. All right. So there you have it. And I will just say what I usually say when somebody on the show says something of such high value that thank you and you're welcome to the audience. And Eric has mentioned the importance of being succinct so many times. I think that is the challenge for all of us moving forward is to get that message across laser focused validated, not just hearsay, and adapted to the specific audience. I know that some senior leaders, especially in the technical fields, a few of them really love to talk about the weeds of the details, but most do not. But you have to know. You have to know who you're talking to. So, Eric, I appreciate your sharing this insight into the real changes going on in the financial aspect of our economy and the world and how I still feel like uh, some of my data is being used against my will, maybe because, you know, you accept the cookies and does that give you, you're like signing your life away for them to follow you around with ads the rest of your life. That's stopping. Web 3 is going to change that. Web 5, I mean, read about it. We're still years away from really defining a lot of that, but it's in the works. All right. Well, that's very exciting. Well, um, before we close, if you would like to say anything else about Web 3 or Web 5 or credit or form free, 
you have the last word and tell people how they could connect with you if they wish to, if that's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Based on everything that we talked about today and where we are, you know, our focus is the consumer financial ability to pay of all of us as individuals. That's why we call it the consumer financial DNA. We believe in the democratization of everyone and the use of their data, the privacy of their data, the security of their data, and how it can use to help enable their lives as well as build wealth. So reach out. uh, Formfree.com is our website for anyone who wants to reach out. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And love to hear any messages from anyone and any feedback and anything that you'd like to share as well. All right, guys. So you're hearing the future. You're hearing how it's going to look here on this show. How is this free? I'm just spoiling you rotten, bringing you these amazing guests that are sharing true insights, things that are happening and things you can't see yet. So thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate your being so generous with your insights. And everybody, I will catch you on the next episode.